0: Okay, we're going to let the little ones be dismissed for junior church, and as they go, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew 16, as we begin this new year, Matthew 16, I want to invite you to stand with me this morning with your Bibles or your iPads or whatever you're using, Matthew 16, and I would like to read beginning in verse 13, I'm reading from the NIV this morning. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others still say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or hell, the grave will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah at that time. Just prior to the crucifixion. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed. And on the third day, to be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What comes to your mind when you think about the church, what comes to your mind when you think about the church? I did it where every wise person in our age does. You go to Wikipedia, you find a definition. Here's the definition of Wikipedia for a church a building for public Christian worship. Okay, the key word being what? Building. Church is a place. Secondly, it is the public worship of God or a religious service in a building like this. Third definition, it is the whole body of Christian believers. And I added this, organized as the church to take the gospel to the world. I've often thought, for people that are new to the church, how does this hit you? What does it look like? Like, if you never went to church, like my parents, by and large, didn't. They went when they were young and then stayed away from the church for a long time. And then a guy that sold groceries door to door invited them to come to church. and shared Christ with them and invited them to come into this building that had 600 people in it. And I thought, what that was like for my parents? Took them into a place where people, quite frankly, did a lot of strange and odd things. So I offer you this brief reflection on the church. An odd gathering of odd people who do odd things. (laughs) They gather weekly in a building called the church, by that definition I gave you earlier, to give away money. They sing love songs to someone they can't see. They talk to someone who cannot respond from the perspective of the observer. They listen to lectures based upon a book over 3,000 years old. They drink wine or juice and bread in remembrance of the broken body and shed blood of a man who died 2,000 years ago on an old rugged cross in a town called Jerusalem. They believe this man died to bear the consequence of their sin on that cross. They believe that, many of their, sins, that their sins are forgiven when they repent of them and trust in the shed blood of this Savior to cleanse them from all their sins. They believe this man rose from the grave on the third day And they put people underwater and bring them back up out of the water to illustrate what they believe this man, Jesus, did. They believe they should tell others about what this man did and encourage others to believe the same thing so they can be born again and have their lives changed as well. Their lives are in many ways similar to their own, but in significant ways odd or different. Some of them strive to live with integrity and honesty. Some of them make incredible sacrifices to make the name of this Jesus known. Some strive selflessly to serve and meet the needs of others. Some of them endure great opposition and criticism, but do so with great love, dignity, and endurance. When one of them dies, they sorrow. But their sorrow seems to be mitigated by a hope that allows them to genuinely grieve and rejoice simultaneously. They are seemingly motivated by a hope and a confident assurance that one day this Jesus will come again. And they will be with him forever. And when he comes, he will establish his righteous kingdom on a new earth as it is in heaven. And so they live with the joy and hope that many envy. As a result, they gather on Sunday in a place called church. And they do the same through the week to study that old book. To encourage each other, to pray, to support and serve one another. What is your view of the church? What is your view of this odd gathering that gathers to do odd things? And what does Matthew 16 reveal to us this morning about the church that Jesus loves? I just want to make a few observations from this text. The focal point of my attention will be verse 18, but I don't want it to be detached from the confession that drives it. Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the promised redeemer, the promised savior, the one who will rescue his people from their sin. And Jesus says to Peter, upon that rock, I will build my church. So the first thing I think we learn from this verse is this. For Jesus Christ, the church is a priority. He takes personal interest in the progress and growth Of the church. Now, in the Greek language, the word for church is ecclesia. It is an assembly of people gathered together from the general population. They come from outside into a gathering, and so that ecclesia, that assembly, is the church. And so the assemblies of God denomination derives their name from ecclesia of theos in Greek, the gathering of God's people, the assembly of God. They are people that have a common confession. That Jesus Christ is the son of God and is the Messiah that God sent to change our lives. And I think what this text basically asserts Jesus in his own words, I will build my church. He actively sacrificed for and participates in the building of his church. Ephesians 2.22 says it this way here one moment listen to this verse Paul writing under the inspiration of the spirit says this and in Christ you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit I want you to listen to the verb passive and in him you two are being built together What does that tell you? Paul believed what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18. I will, present tense, build my church on into the future. That's the way that it is. So Jesus is actively building something. An assembly of people who call on his name, who trust in him and believe in him. A dwelling in which God lives by the Spirit. So what is the church? It's a gathering of people who are filled by the Spirit of God to do business on this planet for the glory of God. And they are assisted by Christ who accepts the church as a personal priority in His existence. Let that thought settle in. Christ is actively building His church. You and I are part of His church because He is bringing you into His body and building you together as a place where God dwells, not for your comforts, but to empower you to change the world you live in for the glory of God. And my aim this morning, in light of this text, and in light of this first thought, I will build my church is to challenge us to compare our view of the church, our commitment to the church, its place in our lives, to the place it had in the life of Christ. And so the simple question flows out somewhat naturally, doesn't it? As you read that I will build my church by his shed blood ultimately, by severe sacrifice, by cruel death. Christ is building his church. So the natural question that comes to my mind personally is this. Is my commitment as strong as that of Christ to the church? Is building the body of Christ for us individually, for us as church participants here in Washington, New Jersey, are we so devoted that we can say the church is one of the top priorities in my life because it was one of Christ's top priorities? Does the question make sense? If Christ made it high, high on the list as a promise to encourage his people. What is he doing? I'm building my church. He's calling us to join with him, to come alongside, go into your world, make a difference. Do what someone like Eric is doing. Listen to God. As Jim challenged us last week, as you walk down the street and you get irritated because of things that bother you and trouble you, listen, because in the irritation, God may be speaking. And challenging and calling. There's a reason he let you see it in a way that irritates you. Because what you're thinking is it shouldn't be this way. It should be different. What's the agent of change? You might say, oh, God is the agent of change. Okay. But what is the means that God uses? The means God uses sovereignly is people. People. And that's where this text is going to go. He's going to say, I've given you disciples, my people, my church. I've given you authority to go out and to share the gospel. To share the confession. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the savior of the world. And by that proclamation, he builds his church. But he never does it apart from that proclamation. The unfortunate truth in America is this. For many of us, our church relationships are at best casual and secondary. Whether I'm at church on a Sunday morning, depends if other things are on my schedule or not. And so we have a weak casual commitment that is quite frankly stronger than our commitment to our kids' sports activities. Rue the day that they miss a soccer game. But church, well. Yeah. My conviction is this. In, the, in America, the church has become a spectator sport. And in a spectator sport, here's the way it works. By the way, I did not know if the Eagles won before I went to bed last night. I found out when I got to church the horrific news. Okay? They lost. And a field goal. Sure. If they won, you know what I would do? Because I'm a spectator. I would take credit for the work, labor, and success of others. And I would say, we won. That's how a lot of people treat the church. What do spectators do? They take personal responsibility for the hard-won success of others. They applaud people like Eric, but refuse to lift their hand to the task. They respect what he's doing, but we never move to take action. We applaud people like Eric when they succeed or like Marie when they succeed. And we criticize them when they fail and say something like, I wondered if that would work. Scary. And we do this as spectators in the church while never putting ourselves in a place where sacrifice is required, where risk is taken, and where failure is possible. And we think ourselves the church. When the church is a place where I go to get and never give of myself, I am a spectator. And I think I would argue this morning, and I say this not to hurt you, but to challenge you with the heart of Christ in a way that will not cause us to say, Pastor, that was really convicting. I don't care if it convicts you. God cares if it changes you. And I would love to etch in our hearts this very simple phrase, I will build my church. The words of Christ. And I would love to know if we would say this morning, I will join him." I would join him in what he is doing in such a way that I take risk and I risk failure. I risk reputation. I risk everything so that his name might be known. I'll be very honest with you and say that someone like Marie knowing what she's doing to me is a stretch. But God bless her. May God prosper her. And may her tribe increase in our church. People that listen to God. And don't care if it is truly life altering. Because folks, here's the bottom line. You can't be born again and not have your life changed. You can't. And when Christ brings you into his church and begins to build you, your life will change. And if it hasn't changed, then you need to ask yourself a question. Have I ever really been converted? And if you haven't, don't run away in fear. Get to the cross. And trust the Savior don't be afraid. I went through this as a kid. If you're a young person growing up in this church, you say, I don't know if my heart's been changed. I didn't know my heart was changed until I said yes to God. I mean in a true way. I was 21. I said yes a lot of times. I prayed the prayer a lot of times. But God broke my heart when I was 21. Is that when you were saved? I don't know. I know it's when he changed my life and severely altered the trajectory of my life. By a simple word. Yes. Yes. You have won my heart. You have challenged me. You have broken my rebellion. Thank you for forgiving me. And Jesus says to you this morning. I will build my church. My question to all of us this morning. Is will we join him? So I will build. The verb. My church the object of Christ. Passion and affection. First thought. The church is Jesus's priority. Is it mine? Secondly, Jesus is passionate about the church. Am I? Now, I know people that are passionate about a lot of things. I recently bought an old little F100 1953 Ford pickup truck. And what I realized is this. A lot of people are passionate about that truck. Right? They, they, oh, I love something like that. Okay. Are you, what excites you? What gets your attention? What draws you to action? You know, what? I, if I could, I would do that. I would go get that. What, what drags you out? What drug Jesus out? You know what drug Jesus out? The purchase of his bride. We just sung that song. Now, why the spirit and unbelief? Uh, forget which, which song this phrase is in. Christ will own the prize for which he died, the inheritance of nations. That's the passion of Christ. Is it mine? I will build my church. I will gather my family, my assembly, my body. Not for its comfort, but to change the world. Do you see? There's vision in this statement. I will build my church so that it will impact the world. It's not about a building. It's about a body of people that he wants to unleash in this world, filled with his spirit, to make a difference. And he uses willing people to do that. That church in scripture is defined as his family in Ephesians 2 and verse 19. Here's what the text says. Consequently, you who have come to Christ are no longer foreigners and strangers, meaning what's happening here isn't odd to you. You're not aliens and strangers. But you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Now, over the holidays, my favorite thing is being with my wife and watching our three girls. Why? I love my family. There is little that brings me that much joy. I love this church. I think I find more joy in my daughters. I don't really feel like I should apologize for that. I love watching them together. I love being with them. It brings me joy. You know what the book of Psalms says? I think it's Psalm 103. It says how good and how pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. You know what I think that means? I think that means that Father looks down on his household that was purchased by the blood of his son and was filled by the Spirit to be different. And when he sees us loving each other and effectively reaching our world together, contending Ephesians 2 says, together for the gospel, I think Father has a smile on his face. I think it brings him great joy when we hear Eric's heart and we say, I want to come help you. I think that brings joy to our Father. When two churches of a slightly different stripe come together and say, you know, we love Christ. We believe he died for our sins and for the sins of people in our community. We're going to go together and be his family, and be his body and make a difference. I think when God's people come out of the stands and get onto the field of life, it encourages his heart dramatically. The church in Ephesians 5 is also called the bride of Christ. And this is where I think Jesus says, I will build my church. There is a distinct and pronounced passion in the words of Christ, a devotion in the words of Christ, a prioritization in the words of Christ. And I think they're reflected when you get into Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. Like Christ, love the church. And gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her, the church, you, you, to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. But holy and blameless. One of the greatest moments of a wedding, and I assume that one's coming in my life, somewhere in the near future. In a wedding, what's the greatest moment of a wedding? It's not when the pastor stands up front. And I've realized this. It's like you walk up there and stand there, and nobody applauds. Nobody even notices because they aren't there to see you. They have a distinct focus. And when that music starts to play, they all rise in turn. And every expression is incredible. And the joy of seeing a radiant, beautiful bride come down the aisle is one of the most amazing experiences. My favorite part of being a pastor is to stand up front and to watch that crowd turn, to watch people come, to watch the change, the moments come. It is a beautiful gift from God. I love the passion of that moment. And I can't read Jesus saying, I want to present the church without blemish, without wrinkle, spotless. Can't help but think about a wedding. And I can't help think that Christ loves Tim Hoff and is seeking to cleanse me and purify me and make me radiant. And if you know him to make you radiant, to make you the object of his affection. He goes on in this text then to say what? Husbands, love your wives in this way. Why? Because the church is his body. And then he goes on to say, no man has ever yet hated his own flesh. He cares for and cherishes. And all the women said, that's how my husband is. Right? He loves to take care of himself. He never misses a beat on that. And Jesus says, I give that kind of devotion to my body, the church. I love her. And folks, listen. Can we be honest? There are people that never walk in the doors of a church. Because of the sheer hypocrisy and spottedness of the church. Because of how shameful and wrinkled the clothing of the church often is. You know what we need to do? We need to be the church. And we need to become passionate about what Christ is passionate about. What he's passionate about is that we would be spotless without wrinkle and stain. So that the watching world sees the real church. And not a sham. Not spectators. Who talk about it but never do it. It is unbelievable. When we live like that. Am I passionate about the church? Like a groom is passionate about his bride. When she comes down the aisle. Because that's how Jesus feels about the church. Thirdly, Jesus is devoted to the protection of his church. I will build my church. He says in Matthew 16, 18... And the gates of hell will not prevail against her. And I don't know what you do with that. Because the gates of Washington, New Jersey, I haven't found. Has anybody found them? There are no gates here. In the ancient world, a city had gates. The gates were the place of authority and the place of security. It's where you marked power and it's where you marked confidence. Jesus says to the church... Hell itself, the evil one, will throw its best assault at what I am trying to do. But the gates of hell, the authority of hell, the power of hell, and Satan himself will not prevail. And what does that mean? And what's the conclusion we draw from that? I would say this to you this morning. In the midst of all your fears and anxiety, Jesus is devoted to the success of the church. And I hear people in our day talking about the demise of the church and whether the church will survive the current philosophical perspective and lack of truth. Whether the church can stand against the onslaught that has come against her. And I will say this. I believe there is an onslaught against her. I believe it is the gates of hell. And I believe they will not prevail. Because that's the promise of Christ. So what should the church do? With confidence, listen to God, step into the gap. Do what Marie's doing. You don't have to go overseas to do what Marie's doing. It's next door. It's at your school. It's in your home. It's at your family gathering. It's at your block party. It's in your workplace. The opposition is there. Opposition that Jesus wants to overpower and redeem. For the glory of his name. Jesus said the evil one comes to kill and destroy. But I came that you might have life. And have it abundantly. Folks, I can't think of anything more exciting than really being the church, the greatest place on earth, and usually the most hated place on earth. And how unfortunate, and how predictable, and how foretold by Christ that Satan would give us his best shot, that he would come at us strong, and he promises that if we are willing, we can stand. Not in our own strength, because most of you, and here's, let's be honest now, the reason many of us are spectators is because there are more qualified people on the field. That's why Tim Hoff is not a running back for the Eagles, okay? I don't belong on that field. Unfortunately, that's how many people look at the church. There are paid, more highly qualified people who can do that, and it's not me. And Satan wants you to believe that lie. But if you believe that lie, you do not understand the nature of the church, You don't understand that the church is also a body made up of many members, some visible, some bear this responsibility. This, I would tell you, is a burden. Not in a bad way, but it is a burden. It is a responsibility. Some of you have gifts from God that are burdens and responsibilities. Some of them are gifts of encouragement. Some of them are gifts of confrontation. Some of those are gifts of lowly, hard service that cost you. This church cannot succeed with leaders only. No church can successfully do the work of God with leaders alone. It can't. The church is a body, and every part needs to do its work in order for it to be successful. I often laugh when I hear people say, and I think, where's Lucas? Lucas, do you play by ear? You do, okay. I've never seen Lucas play by ear. Right? Have you? No, Lucas has a body. He has a capacity to hear things, and he can't play them with his ear. He can play them with his fingers beautifully and powerfully. And so does with the church. Math can't do things that hands can do. Brain can't do things that eyes can do. Noses can't do things that feet can do. They can't. In his infinite wisdom, God is building his church like a body that is bound together with innumerable parts. That when they work together, do amazing things that none of the individual parts could do alone. And when you, st- when you get that, when that settles in and changes your perspective on church... This church will begin to grow for the glory of God. And we will see things happen that we never expected. And we operate knowing that Christ is guarding the target of the evil one with all of his might and power. I want to close with this question. This question I asked you this morning. What is the most constant threat to the mission of the church. What is the most constant, predictable threat to the mission of the church that Christ loves and has promised to build and protect? Has made his passion and his priority, therefore it should be mine. What is the most common threat to that work? You can speak. What? Apathy, okay. Okay. Business, okay. Mediocrity, Mediocrity? okay. What else? What's the greatest threat to the church? Satan, okay. Begin reading in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders. The chief priests and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed on the third day and raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Now listen. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a, and I'm going to give you the Greek word, not to impress you, but you'll know the word. You are a scandalone to me. Scandalon. A scandalon is what enters between the legs of a runner and causes them to fall and be disqualified. And Jesus says, Peter, you who just did what? Who just proclaimed the gospel? You, Peter, rock upon which I'm going to build the church, premier apostle, you are a scandal on to me. And my question is, what's the greatest threat to the church? You have in mind the concerns, not of God, but merely human concerns. Wow. Peter, you are preoccupied with what you want. And it's blinding you to what you need. And it's blinding you to what you have just so eloquently confessed. Because folks, listen, there were 12 disciples. Only one got the answer right. It was Peter. Whoa, Peter. Wow, Peter. Next verse, Satan. What are they saying? Any one of us can be used as an instrument of the evil one to disrupt what God is doing. And you will only survive that in the protection of Christ by the power of the Spirit. And folks, what I would argue this morning is the greatest threat to the church is what Tim Hoff wants, what Rocco Kara wants what frank becker wants you pick on a lady it's what Gail Shmiel wants it's what you want and that's what jesus is saying to peter peter you want the kingdom you want the glory you want to debate about who sits at the right hand or the left hand you want prominence. you want people to see you what if i want you to be the stuff on the bottom of a foot what if i want you to be a fingernail what if i want you to be a part of the body that no one ever sees but desperately needs What if I call you to great sacrifice and service and nobody ever sees and knows? Now you will only do that if you love what Christ loves. And if you know that you are loved by him, it will free you into realms of amazing service. Because in this text, we would say Peter's objection seems noble, doesn't it? You shall never die. Over my dead body. We love you. Think of that. Noble obstruction. Can I suggest that in the church there are many noble obstructions to what Christ is trying to do? The pursuit of my dreams and my goals and my desires and my family. I think I'm sufficiently devoted to my family. I don't know. I don't know if I'm sufficiently devoted to Christ. I don't know. Because I am haunted by self-interest. And you might have missed it last Sunday, but Marie talked about doing war with self-interest. Absolutely amazes me. That at the heart of the premier disciple is the idol of self. And most of us won't admit it. Today I will. And I'm not even sure that I understand it all. I know I don't. But I would encourage you this morning, if you will love what Christ loves and make a priority what Christ makes a priority and be passionate about what Christ is passionate about and help to protect what God is doing, you're going to have to kill yourself. And I'm not Jim Jones, okay? Okay. There's no Kool-Aid up here. <laughs> but if you aren't willing to let your desires die, and I'm not willing to let my desires die, then we will never be what God could cause us to be. And I think God has amazing plans. I am utterly confident that he will build his church. And I'm confident that he can use me to do it and that he doesn't need me to do it. I can say both. But I know he wants to do it. I know he's devoted to it. And I, with a bated breath, look forward to what God has in store for us. I think the one thing I would say from the end of this text is that he uses willing people. He says to the apostles, you're going to go out and you're going to do this and you're going to do this and you're going to do this and this and this. And they are amazing things. They are things that I'm not even going to try to explain to you this morning because I don't have enough time and I don't understand them. But they're amazing things. But they only happen in the lives of surrendered people who are willing to realize that they become scandalines that slow things down. They become spectators who observe and critique. And if you find in yourself a critical spirit this morning, I can pretty much guarantee you you're not involved in what God is doing. And I don't mean official te- activities of this church, meaning what happens here on Sunday morning. I mean just out in the week of your, of your daily life and your daily days. Seeking people, helping people, loving people, supporting people in your church family, getting together for fellowship and worship and prayer. All things that don't have to be organized by the church when the body functions healthfully. That's even a word. They all, when they are happening, the body is healthy. When they are not happening, the body is unhealthy. falls into self-criticism and scandal. And so I say this this morning to protect us as a church family. Jesus makes the church a priority in this age. Will I? Will I? Not because I'm outstanding. Not because I have pronounced gifts. But because I'm willing Upon this rock, this God-appointed means, I will build my church. And I want to, as I close, I want to turn your attention back to verse 17, which begins this text. Peter makes his proclamation. Jesus makes a shrewd observation. Because maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're rightfully skeptical about the church because you've seen the church. You know what it's really like. And you don't like what you see. Number one, we apologize. Secondly, I want you to see this. If God is drawing your heart and you're allowing the things of this earth, you're allowing people's attitudes and actions and all those sorts of things to keep you from Christ, I want this text to destroy your resistance. Listen to what it says. Jesus replied after Peter makes this, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are what we've been waiting for. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. What is it? Peter, stop. Do you know why you understand that? Because Father in heaven has allowed you to see what you didn't want to see. And folks, here's the truth. If you're here this morning and God has been surrounding you in your life, been bringing people into your life that are Jesus freaks, they're the weird people that go to church, they're the odd people that do odd things on Sunday morning, If he's brought those people around you, he is pursuing you. He wants to own you. He wants to redeem you. Through repentance and faith in his blood. And he, through his sovereign means, the church, is pursuing you. And if you hear the hand of heaven breathing down your back, as an old writer said, I would encourage you this morning. As you sense God drawing, turn, repent, trust in Christ. Respond to the call that he's given to you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I will forgive you and cleanse you and change you forever. Jesus says, Peter, not by flesh and not by blood, but my father. Which means what? Everyone in the church is in the church because of a divine act of the God who is doing what? Who is building his church and who is bringing you by the Spirit into Ephesians 2, His church. So if you're in the church and you have the blessing of eyes to see and to understand the things that other people perceive as odd, thank God. Thank God that you see there are people that stand here and hear the same songs that you hear, sing the same words that you sing and don't get them. You don't get them because you're smarter. You get them because the Father revealed it to you which should make the church what? The humblest place on earth. When you get the true gospel, it will utterly destroy your selfishness and raise you to be a servant who is no longer a spectator who can get on the field and work with a team of people who does not have to have prominence because that all goes to Christ. Everything else is scandal. May God help us in this new year to love what Jesus loves. And I'm going to tell you this right now. There's a pastor good sermon that helped me out a lot. If it doesn't change you, it's a waste of time. If you don't go home today and make adjustments in your life. And I had to come to a point at 21 years old where I said, God, I have lived in pursuit of self-interest. And that self-interest for me has always been the beginning of compromise. Always. And scandal. God aims to destroy that and set us free. And I am thankful that he broke my self-interest, my selfish desire, what I wanted. He crushed it and won my heart. I responded to an invitation before the sermon. I know you all think I'm weird. That's how weird I am. The pastor before he preached said, if you'll tell God right now, you'll respond to him in light of what is shared today, raise your hand. My hand went up and I was like, did I just do that? I was done. He didn't even have to preach. You know why? Because my self-interest was shattered by that question. One question. Will you do what I called you to do? Will you go where I want you to go? Will you be who I want you to be instead of being who you want to be? Obsessed with self-interest? Will you deny yourself and follow me? Will you take up your cross and die so you can live? That's why Christ came. If you don't know him, I encourage you this morning, repent of your sin. Trust in the blood of Christ that we sung about so powerfully a little bit ago. And then Church of Christ, this morning, let's arise and put our armor on and go and do the work of God this year like we never have before and then next year like we never have before until he comes. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning.